So after you find Hebrews 11, stand. Let's read it together. Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 4. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Let's pray. Father, we uh, again just uh, praise you for your goodness and grace. We thank you for the salvation we have in Christ. Lord, we thank you that uh, as we um, celebrate the Lord's Supper today, that we can remember all you've done for us, how you uh, came and into this world to die an atoning death on the cross for us. And Lord, we we thank you for that. Lord, we uh, pray that you would help us to understand the significance of it. And Lord, as we again continue to uh, focus on the life of faith, we pray that we would be people of faith, that uh, as we go through this chapter, that we would understand just uh, without any uh, equivocation what it means to walk with you and to walk with faith and live that life of faith. And so, Lord, we we pray that you would make us uh, that kind of people in the world. And as we do, we pray that you would just uh, bless and use us for your purpose, for your glory, that we could point other people to you and your amazing grace. So, Lord, uh, as we worship today, Lord, our hearts are, are just overflowing with gratitude. Lord, we uh, we thank you for all that you've provided for us. And, Lord, we rejoice, we worship, and uh, we express our praise to you. And it's all in Jesus' name. Amen. Two weeks ago, we examined Hebrews 11, 1 through 3, and answered the question, what is biblical faith? In verse 2, the author of Hebrews declared, by it, the men of old gained approval. And now, beginning in verse 4, he is going to demonstrate that through his example list, through his series of biblical examples of those who responded to God in faith centuries before the coming of Christ into the world. And as each one is introduced by the formula, by faith, they are presented as the just who live by faith. These are all people whose lives are characterized by genuine faith in God. And as we begin to go through this list, we will see several aspects of genuine biblical faith highlighted. First, we will see that faith always involves some kind of action. And what we will see is that each of these people demonstrated their faith through some concrete action. Abel offered a better sacrifice. Noah built an ark. Moses left Egypt, etc., etc. In other words, biblical faith always 
does something in faith. Secondly, true faith is action that is taken in response to the promises of God. Faith urges a person to act in accordance to God's truth. In other words, faith finds its reason in the unseen God. And it does something as a result of that. Thirdly, faith works in a variety of situations and has a variety of outcomes. Sometimes, faith produces an immediate positive outcome, like the walls of Jericho falling down before the Israelite armies. But the reward of faith can also be delayed, or it can even result in a negative outcome, like those in this chapter that we see who were tortured, beaten, sawn in two, etc. Now, those kinds of things don't really fit in well with our God loves you and have, has a wonderful plan for your life type of evangelism. But it is just as much a part of biblical faith as all the positive results. And whatever else we say about biblical faith, we must be faithful to warn that sometimes God's promises are delayed, like when Abraham had to wait for the child of promise. And sometimes being a person of faith results in severe persecution and suffering. George Guthrie says, our application of this passage must point out that faithful people sometimes do not see results in this life as most of the people in this chapter never saw the promises of God come to fulfillment. So we, too, will not always see all of God's promises come to fruition while we are still alive. Fourthly, faith is ultimately always rewarded by God. One resounding point of Hebrews 11 is that God's pilgrims always look beyond the immediate to grasp the significance of the ultimate. Faith always involves believing that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So with all that in mind, a good summary definition, I think, is given by George Guthrie He says, faith is confidence that results in action carried out in a variety of situations by ordinary people in response to the unseen God and his promises with various earthly outcomes, but always the ultimate outcome of God's commendation and reward. This is what we will see in this chapter. And we begin with Abel. I'm calling this faith demonstrated through worship because Abel's faith answers the question, how does a person approach God? Abel is the first in a long line of faithful people who can teach us about a life of faith. We talked about sola fide last Sunday 
that really is what this chapter is all about. Abel and the others mentioned in this chapter illustrate a pure kind of faith that is sharply distinguished from works righteousness. And yes, Abel did something, but the emphasis is on his faith that led him to do that. And this is something I think the Jews of the first century especially needed to hear because they were so oriented around the concept of works righteousness. They needed to understand that from the very beginning, faith was the only thing that was acceptable to God. Abel was the first man of faith. And it is important for us to see that his faith is what led to his personal salvation. John MacArthur writes, Abel's faith led to three progressive things. True sacrifice, true righteousness, and true witness. Because he believed, he offered a better sacrifice. Because he offered a better sacrifice, he obtained righteousness. And because he obtained righteousness, he is for all the ages a living voice saying, Righteousness is by faith alone. Of course, we know from Genesis that after the fall, Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden because of their sin. And yet, even though they were judged in this way, grace, even at the very beginning, was promised to them. And the grace of God then provided a way back into fellowship with God. In Genesis 3.15, we have the Proto-Evangelium, the first mention of the gospel of grace. And through the seed of the woman, Satan's head would be crushed, even though he would bruise the heel of the one who would be born of the woman. And of course, that is a reference to Jesus Christ, who would be put to death and yet would rise from the dead to defeat Satan and sin and death. So even while judgment was being executed, grace was being offered. By the way, the only woman who could have fulfilled this promise was Mary because of the virgin birth. Because there's only been one virgin birth in the history of mankind. There is only one who could be considered the seed of the woman because all others are the seed of man. But with the mother of Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God placed the seed in her womb and she gave birth to the only one who could be the promised one. And it's interesting that in her comments after the birth of Cain, it is likely that Eve thought, that Cain was the promised deliverer. The name Cain means to get or to get something. And here the statement in Genesis 4.1 says, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. But literally it could read this way, I have gotten he who is here. So Eve thought Cain was the promised deliverer. Of course, she was mistaken 
because he actually turned out to be the first murderer. But as MacArthur explains, even apart from Cain's wickedness and faithlessness, he could not have been the Savior, nor could have been any of Adam and Eve's physical descendants. Flash can only produce flash. And in Adam, the Bible says, all died. So the sons of Adam could never give a life which they did not possess. So again, the Lord fulfilled the promise of the Proto-Evangelium in the only way that it could be fulfilled, and that is through the virgin birth of Christ. Now we know from the Genesis account that Abel was the younger brother of Cain. The Bible doesn't tell us their age difference, but Abel was born sometime after Cain. The meaning of the name Abel is breath, weakness, or vanity. And it carries with it the idea of brevity. It may very well be symbolic of the fact that his life was cut short. Abel was a keeper of flocks, while Cain was a tiller of the ground. In other words, Abel was a shepherd and Cain was a farmer. Both were born with a sin nature that was passed down from their parents after the fall. By the way, they were not primitive Neanderthals as the evolutionists would have us believe. They were highly intellectual and sophisticated. They understood animal husbandry and agriculture. They, they were not Neanderthals. But as we move into this text, we see three things about Abel that made him unique. First of all, we see what Abel offered. What Abel offered. Look at verse 4 again. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. Now, this takes us back to the Genesis account. So, turn with me to Genesis uh, chapter 4 for a moment. Genesis 4, and let's look at verses 3 through 5. Verse 3, So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground, and Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Now here we have some very important details. The implication of this passage is that God must have given some earlier instruction about worship and about the offering of sacrifices that we don't have in Scripture. For example, this assumes that there must have been a place for them to bring their offerings. There had to have been some kind of an altar somewhere because the way this is worded, they brought their offerings to a certain place. Secondly, there had to have been an appointed time for them to bring their offerings. The phrase, in the course of time, literally means at the end of days. 
In other words, at the end of a certain period of time, they were to bring their offerings. And this implies that God had set a certain time for them to bring their gifts and to worship Him. And the fact that they both brought their offerings at the same time bolsters this assumption. Thirdly, there had to have been some instruction from God as to the specific way in which they were to worship. These men on their own would never have known about the proper way to worship God, so he must have given them some instructions, probably through their parents. One commentator says, It is especially significant that the first recorded act of worship was sacrifice, a sin offering, the supreme act of worship in all of God's covenants with his people. In other words, in every biblical covenant that God made with men, the first order of business was to deal with men's sin. And it was true, as we know in the Abrahamic covenant, as a sacrifice was offered and the covenant was cut. We, we know it was true in the later covenant of law through Moses, and it was true of the new covenant. And we've already seen that the theme of this book is the perfect sacrifice of Christ that was given to take away our sin forever. And we know that the elaborate sacrificial system under the old covenant was that there were uh, daily offerings for sin. But the point here is, there is no way that Cain and Abel would have known anything about the necessity of a blood sacrifice apart from the instruction of God. And the fact that in this case, God only accepted one of the sacrifices and not the other indicates that God had made it clear that there was only one way of approaching Him and worshiping Him. Now, we're specifically told in Hebrews 11.4 that Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain. But we're not told in Scripture why that was the case. And scholars have debated this for literally centuries. Some see the difference in the types of offerings that were given. Others see the difference in the quantity that was offered. Still others understand the difference to be the heart of the men as they offered uh, their gifts. I personally do not believe that it had anything at all to do with the quantity that was offered. But I do believe it includes both the type of the offering and the heart with which it was offered. And if you go back to the Genesis account, it says the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. It goes on to say, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. It's both the man and the offering. So we have to look at both aspects. As for the man, Abel was a man of faith and Cain was not. As for the offering, one was an acceptable offering and the other was not. Why is that? 
I mean, both of these men really brought an offering that was appropriate for his vocation. And really, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with an offering of grain or fruit or vegetables. In fact, later on, under the Mosaic Covenant, these kind of offerings would be part of that sacrificial system. What's the problem? The problem is that God had clearly instructed the people that a sin offering always required the shedding of blood. It's what the author of Hebrews had said earlier in chapter 9, verse 22. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission, no covering, no atonement for sin. If it's a sin offering, it requires the shedding of blood. And Cain's offering was not accepted by God because it was not a blood sacrifice. But this also goes to the hearts of these two men. Because there is no doubt that God had made it clear to them, but Cain refused to bring that which God specifically said is required. Abel demonstrated a heart of faith by obeying what God had instructed, while Cain showed a heart of rebellion. He turned to his own way. He brought what he chose to bring instead of what God said was necessary. And here is where the life of faith begins. It begins with a blood sacrifice to atone for sin. It begins with acknowledging our sin before God and knowing that we have no way of paying for our sin. It begins with trusting in God's plan for salvation and atonement. Abel brought a blood sacrifice. And of course, that sacrifice pointed to the ultimate sacrifice of Christ on the cross of Calvary to atone for our sin forever. But Ron Phillips says, Abel's blood offering displayed that he recognized his guilt. That because he was deserving of death, Abel offered a substitute for sin. In chapter 12, the author of Hebrews will declare that this speaks of Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and his sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. In other words, Abel's blood sacrifice was a prefigurement of the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. On the other hand, Cain represents all those who reject God's plan of salvation through faith in the atoning work of Christ. So we have really a division of two plans of salvation and understanding God's God's plan of atonement. Philip says, He was too proud to offer a blood sacrifice, yet his wicked heart did not hesitate to shed the blood of his own brother. So the difference is in the offering itself and in the heart with which it was given. Abel gave what God said was necessary. Cain gave what he chose to give. One was given in faith, believing God. The other was given in rebellion and unbelief. Proverbs 15.8 says, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. Cain had the same knowledge of God's requirements 
but he chose to worship in his own way. You say, well, you know, Cain must not have believed in God. Of course he believed in God. Otherwise, he would not have brought any kind of offering. He believed in... The problem was not that he did not believe in God. The problem was he chose to go his own way. He thought he could approach God any old way he wanted. And please understand this. In doing so, Cain became the father of all false religion. False religion is trying to come to God in some other way than what God has prescribed. Rather than coming to Him with repentance and faith alone in Christ alone, religious man tries to come to Him through some works of righteousness or some other path. False religion says things like, well, I can get to God by thinking myself into nirvana. Or I can approach God through meditation. Or I can satisfy God through religious rituals. But God has declared there is only one way to Him, and that is through faith in His Son. It is only on the basis of the shed blood of Christ on Calvary. So false religion is trying to get there some other way than the way God has ordained. False religion is what the Bible describes in Proverbs fourteen twelve. There is a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is the way of death. No, there's only one way. As Jesus himself declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Cain's disobedience and rebellion against God's revealed will was the beginning of Satan's world system, his system of deception and condemnation in this world. Genesis 14:6 says, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. That's a way of saying he continued on in his unbelief and rebellion. By his own decision, by his own volition, he turned away from God and God's way and turned to his own way. You say, well, he didn't have a choice. Of course he had a choice. I mean, Genesis 4, 6, and 7 says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you or to master you, but you must master it. If Cain had gained victory over the sin that was crouching at his door, he could have repented and offered the proper sacrifice and have been accepted by God like his brother But he didn't do that. Listen, we should not feel sorry for Cain because he chose to go his own way. He chose to allow sin to control his life. He knew what God wanted, and he was able to do that, but he 
chose instead to do what he himself wanted. Interestingly, in the book of Jude, we see false teachers described. And verse 11 says, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. Cain became the symbol of false religion. He is like those of whom Paul wrote in Romans 10, 2 and 3. They have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Abel offered a better sacrifice because it was from a heart of obedience and faith. It was according to God's instructions. And his sacrifice was that which prefigured the cross. John MacArthur says the first sacrifice was Abel's lamb. One lamb for one person. Later came the Passover. One lamb for one family. Then came the Day of Atonement with one lamb for one nation. Finally came Good Friday, one lamb for the whole world. Jesus Christ is prefigured in Abel's sacrifice. Well, we must move on. Not only do we see the significance of what Abel offered, but secondly, we see what Abel obtained. Go back to verse 4. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts. What did Abel obtain? The confirmation from God that he was righteous. God testified to him that his gifts were acceptable and that he himself was now righteous in his sight. In other words, he gained his salvation. He became an Old Testament saint. You say, how did God confirm this testimony to Abel? Well, perhaps he spoke to him verbally. That's a possibility. Verbal speaking of God during this period of time seems to be fairly common. But I personally believe that this confirmation came through the consuming of the sacrifice that he offered. Even though we're not told that in the text. There are at least five other times in Scripture where God's acceptance of a sacrifice was confirmed by his sending fire to consume that sacrifice. But whether that is the case or not, I believe there was some kind of tangible confirmation that was given to Abel by God. In fact, there was also some sort of indication that God uh, was rejecting Cain's offering as not being acceptable. In other words, God did not leave them in doubt as to their standing before him. He made it clear to both of them that one was righteous in his sight, while the other was rejected and condemned. And you know, it's interesting that 
we see the righteousness of Abel emphasized elsewhere in the New Testament. In Matthew twenty three thirty five, our Lord referred to the blood of righteous Abel. And in and the Apostle John says that Abel was attested as a righteous man. That's first John three twelve. So here we see the biblical example and the we see the principle here of justification by faith alone. Here we see the principle of sola fide that we talked about last week. And we also see the Reformation doctrine of imputation. All of that is symbolized here. And both Cain and Abel, as we know, were sinners. But there was one big difference. One of them exercised biblical faith and the other one did not. One was justified in the sight of God and declared righteous while the other one was not. And of course, Abel was counted as righteous, not because he had any inherent righteousness, but because he believed God. He was declared righteous because of his faith. And although living thousands of years before Christ, he had the righteousness of Christ imputed to his account through faith. He became an Old Testament saint. Well, that leads us to the final aspect, which is what Abel objectified. Abel became a symbol of saving faith in a unique way. After Cain killed his brother Abel, the Lord confronted him and said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. That's Genesis 4.10. The author of Hebrews picks up on that in the last part of Hebrews 11.4. Look at it. Though he is dead, he still speaks. No man stops speaking at his death. His life continues to have an impact for those who are still living. James Moffat wrote, Death is never the last word in the life of a man. When a man leaves this world, be he righteous or unrighteous, he leaves something in the world. He may leave something that will grow and spread like a cancer or poison. Or he may leave something like the fragrance of perfume or a blossom or beauty that permeates the atmosphere with blessing. Dead men do tell tales. They are not silent. They continue to speak to all who will listen. John MacArthur says, From many thousands of years ago, Abel still speaks to 21st century man. This man who lived when the earth was new, who was of the second generation of mankind, has something to teach modern, sophisticated technologically savvy men. He lived in a far distant age, in a far distant culture, with far less light from God than we have. But what he has to tell us is as relevant as anything that we will read in our media. Another pastor says, some of us will go on speaking words of poison, of anguish and agony, 
Some of us will go on speaking vile and vicious words that are the result of our rebellion against God and a refusal to allow God into our lives. Cain was like that. But some of us will go on speaking words of love and trust, of faith and blessing. Abel was a man like that. Through the Word of God, Abel's voice still speaks to us. Though he died thousands of years ago, his example of faith in God continues to inspire Christians today. In the same way, Cain becomes a voice of warning to all those who are in unbelief and rebellion. In Genesis 4, 11 and 12, the Lord said to Cain, Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hands. And when you cultivate the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you, and you shall be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Every bit of soil upon which Cain placed his foot cried out to him and reminded him of his wicked deed. And the earth, in effect, rejected Cain in the same way that Cain rejected God and his brother. And although his brother was dead, Abel's blood continued to cry out to him from the ground and to convict him of his sin. Well, what's the message this morning? Don't be like Cain. Don't rebel against God and reject His ways. Instead, be like Abel. Trust God. Demonstrate true biblical faith. The voice of Abel continues even today to proclaim three things. Number one, man comes to God by faith alone and never by works. Number two, man must accept and obey God's revelation above his own reason and self-will. And number three, those who reject God's plan of salvation will be severely judged. You might call this Abel's timeless three-point sermon. He's still preaching it today, and we still need to heed it. This is a sermon that has been preached for thousands of years, and it is still just as relevant for us. It could be titled, The Just Shall Live by Faith. What about you this morning? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation? That's the message. Let's pray together. Father, we pray you would help us to understand this passage, the significance of it. This first illustration, this first example among many. Lord, we, we need to be people of faith. We want to be people of faith and help us to do that this morning. I pray if there's anyone here today that has never put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, they would do that today. And, Lord, that uh, we would understand that you have only one way of salvation. You have given it to us clearly in your word. And, Lord, we can't come to you any other way. There's only one way. Help us to embrace that true way to you. 
And Lord, we pray uh, that as we respond, that we would respond in a way that pleases you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.